0: Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey.
1: Our reading will come from the first book of Thessalonians chapter five, verses five to 11. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as breastplates and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer the rod, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or Or we are asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the Word of God.
0: Let's just pray before we sit down. Jesus, thank you that you have things to show us, you have things to say to us. Lord, we want to receive what you want to show us today. So Jesus, help us be tuned in to your voice. Send your spirit to reveal your heart to us. Amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat. Welcome. Uh, My name's Richard. Really glad you're here today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're in 1 Thessalonians. Wave your hand in the air and someone will hand you a Bible. Um, And uh, welcome back. Oh, he's gone. I was going to say welcome back, Tim. He's normally sat in that chair right there. Uh, He's left already, again. You can't pin the guy down. Yeah, some, some of our elders uh, just got back from a trip to London, so welcome back. Uh, I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> not jealous at all. Uh, my time will come. Uh, but I do get the privilege of ending the series we've been in in First Thessalonians. We've been on this journey rediscovering church, uh, leaning in to like, okay, Jesus, we want to be this King Jesus family. What do you want to show us about how to do that? And uh, throughout this book, we, we sort of begin with Paul unpacking why we belong, like what belonging looks like in this family, and then teaching us like how to live it out, how God wants to form us to live as his people um, in his family. And uh, we're going to get to chapter five today, where there's the last big idea in Thessalonians that Paul wants to encourage us in, wants to encourage the church in. But we're actually, we're skipping a little portion. So I wanted to say what we're skipping as well, because if you've been following along, you'd be like, wait a second, there's half a chapter missing, what's going on? Uh, So at the end of chapter four, the Thessalonian church had a question that Paul is answering. And the reason we're skipping it is just not a question we have. So they were worried. They were like, well, Jesus is coming back. And like, that this whole thing's going to happen, but what about people who've died? Like, people who, who believe in Jesus, they're a disciple of Jesus, but they've died, like, are they just going to miss out? Uh, and this is just, it's not a question uh, we have, because we've got, like, a different cultural view. In the Greco-Roman worldview, they thought that, like, you died, and then you went to this whole other zone, this whole other realm, and you were completely separate from the land of the living. So the Thessalonians were like, oh no, Like we thought Jesus was going to come back next Wednesday and it's taking longer than we thought. And like, so what about these people? So their culture was giving them this question and it's, it's just not uh, the question we've got. And so uh, there's some interesting things to learn, but it doesn't apply as directly to us. Um, but it launches us into chapter five, which is why it's worth mentioning. Because Paul, in reassuring them, He he draws this imagery from uh, their culture and the Old Testament to paint this picture of like, hey, when Jesus comes back and the resurrection happens, like those who've already died in Jesus will be resurrected and those who are alive, they together will, and and he uses this picture of um, a Greek word, a parousia, uh, which is where if a king was visiting a city, A delegation would go out from the city to sort of honour them and welcome them and bring them back to the city. And so he says, hey, the people who've already died and have been resurrected and the people who uh, are are there alive, who know Jesus, they're going to go meet Jesus, bring him to the earth, like escort him to the earth. And using this imagery from Daniel, that it's all going to happen like in the clouds, which is Old Testament language for like where God's glory is, is showing up, where God's like rolling his sleeves up and like, okay, I'm here, I'm doing the thing. Um, it's sort of one of those kind of moments um, with the, the sound of trumpets, which harkens back to Moses being on the mountain. Uh, you know, when God gave the law. So it's just like this image of God showing up in his glory, in his power to do something, and that whether you've, whether you've died or you haven't died yet, don't worry, you're all going to be a part of it. So the, the rubber meets the road, though, as we get into chapter five, because this having raised this sort of question of like, okay, but Jesus is coming back, so don't worry about people who've died. Okay, that's going to be okay. But what about us as we sort of watch it coming towards us, as we wait for it to happen? And this is what Paul picks up. The, the chapter five is like how to live in light of this being our hope, of this being the reality of what's going to happen. So I just want to read the first few verses again uh, where Paul sets the tone. He says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So this thing, the day of the Lord, again, there's like so much Old Testament language. If we were like totally immersed in the Hebrew Bible, this would all be popping for us. But uh, we're not as immersed. So we've got to like, okay, what's that mean? You've You've got to ask the question. So the day of the Lord was this anticipated moment where God would show up to vindicate his people and to destroy evil and its influences forever. And so there's actually been several days of the Lord. Like one of them was when God turned up to rescue the Israelites from Egypt when the Exodus happened and he brought them out. And there's been lots of these moments of rescue, but it sets a pattern that culminates in like, yeah, but when when is God gonna finally do it in a way that's not like, okay, we've got kind of respite from evil, but you know it's probably going to creep back in, but just it's done. Like when is it just going to be over? When is the day of the Lord going to happen where God shows up and and does this? Um, And the the tricky thing uh, for us is we talk about this in kind of two parts because Jesus has come in a way like there was a day of the Lord moment at Jesus's first advent, when Jesus was born and came and lived and died and was resurrected, but that was the beginning of God's Day of the Lord work, and Jesus said, "You know, I'm going to come back to complete that work." And so we use this language of God as inaugurated; He's begun but not yet completed this work. So sometimes we use language like it's a now and not yet kingdom, this kingdom of God. I like to think of the analogy of like someone recovering from uh, cancer like if someone had leukemia okay and so you know they're in the hospital they've like their their body's deteriorating, they're suffering you know they' they're not gonna like join you on a five k um, they they they're dying okay and then they get a bone marrow transplant okay and you know it, it's sometime after and the nurse is telling you, like, yeah, it was successful. Like, the, the surgery went well, the transplants worked, their body has accepted it, their immune system isn't fighting it, like, it's gonna be okay, okay? And what do you, like, how do you treat that moment, okay? Because you don't, you don't, like, turn to the person in the hospital bed and, like, you're healed. But, well, like, let's do the 5K, come on, like, let's get out there, like, let's do something. You wanna play football? Like, what do you wanna do? It's like no, like you're healed, but but you're not healed yet. Like your destiny as now someone who's gonna be okay is secure. But that healing working its way out, the period of recovery, of realizing those things, is not yet. Okay? It's inaugurated. The healing is inaugurated. It's gonna take some time. And that's what we live in. Jesus came, he defeated sin and death. Okay? He brought life like that reconnected life with God. And it's inaugurated. But we still carry around loads of sin in our bodies. Like we, our, our purification from the cancer of sin has not yet been completed. And the purification of the world, of the whole of creation, has not been completed. But Jesus is going to return to complete that. And it's going to take Jesus coming back to do it. And Jesus said he was going to do it. And that's what the church was waiting for. It was like, like Jesus' is parting words as he ascended, and the disciples were like, "Ah, oh, what now?" You know, and Jesus had told them, "Like, wait for the Spirit. Okay, there's gonna be, like you're still gonna be my disciples. The mission's carrying on. Okay, and uh, then the angel said, "Like, hey, why are you staring up in heaven? Like watching Jesus depart? Like he's coming back. Like you don't need to stand there just like watching. Um, like you can get on with stuff, knowing secure like Jesus will come back." And so this was a big, big idea for the church. And and they were waiting for it. And Paul says, hey, it's going to happen like a thief in the night. It's going to be unannounced. Actually, Jesus said, only the Father knows the time, like when it's going to happen. And it's going to be like the onset of labor. It's unavoidable. Okay? And and so here's the thing Paul's getting at, is we can't plan for when it's going to happen. You can't mark your calendar for this, but you can be prepared when it happens. When Jesus returns, you can be in a position where you're like, yeah, let's go. Like I was anticipating this could happen any time. I've been living in a way that I'm ready for this to happen. And that's what Paul wants to teach the church, how to be ready. And so they're being encouraged to live in light of something different. Because this is countercultural. Like the Greco Roman culture, just like our culture, was preoccupied by how to live if death is the end of our story. Like, if that's where things are headed, if that's the ultimate, like, that's the final page of the book of your life, then that's going to change how you're going to live. And, we're, and like the way that worked in Greek culture and our culture is not too dissimilar, okay? We're going to have forms of like trying to all sorts of forms of trying to avoid it, like escapism and denial, Um, and all sorts of forms of like, oh well, like life's so precious. I I need to squeeze like every little moment I can out of it. And we have like this FOMO of like I I've got my bucket list of experiences, and I need to have as many as I can because that's what life is for. There's only so much of it and what it leads to is leading a kind of life where we feel like life is something to be grasped and hoarded rather than something that's supposed to be spent we we have the same problem with money like we often joke in our house when we're like you know something like last night the dishwasher starts leaking all over the floor and we're like oh no here we go again like you know it's that moment where you pray that prayer like okay god you know thank you for your provision if you want to send spend some of your stupid money on this stupid dishwasher then <laughs> That's your prerogative, you know? Um, but it's, um, I can't even remember why I was saying that. I've just got distracted by the fact I've got to go home and try and fix the dishwasher. Uh, that's right. but, but we have the same problem with money. Like we hoard, we hoard and we hoard and we hoard and we have to remember like the reason God gives us money is because it's for spending. Like that's what money's for. Like that's its purpose in life is to get spent. Now it doesn't mean like spent stupidly or willfully. The same with life. But life is supposed to be spent. And it gets spent differently depending on what you think the story is. And so we get to live life differently. The end of the story is a resurrection. It's not death. So we don't need to lean into those things. We get to live free from that. And this is, uh, this is what Paul's going to unpack. Is that how to live differently. Like, how are we supposed to be different? But before we get to that, Paul's actual advice, his actual how comes in a sandwich of, hey, but I want you to know some things that are true about you, that are real about you, that are the reason why you can be different. And so we've got to get the the bread of the sandwich first. This is like making a sandwich. First thing you do, right? You don't get the ham and cheese and throw it on the counter. You get the bread out first. So that's what we're doing. So let's read uh, the the next couple of verses. And then at the end here, verse 9 and 10. So Paul says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night. Or to the darkness. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we were awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. The logic here is really important. Because of what Jesus has already done, you are children of light. So Paul, the middle part of the sandwich here is not, hey, here's some things you can do to maybe, if you're lucky, have enough light that you can count as a child of the light. No, because of your identity, because of a reality of what Jesus has done, you are children of light. If you have trusted in Jesus as God's way of rescue from evil, if you've put your life in his hands to save you, forgive you, heal you, and lead you, You are a child of light already. We do not belong to the darkness. Like that, that's not the zone we inhabit. We have no belonging there. We belong to Jesus. Jesus' work on the cross has set us free from being slaves to sin and death so that we can be adopted into his family as his children. So Jesus has defeated evil, he's broken its power. So that he could bring us freedom, I love in Colossians chapter one, Paul spells this out, and he he gets this like getting from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, uh, spelled out beautifully. He says uh, he he sort of has already told them a bunch of things Jesus has done, and then encourages them that they should be giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there's these two kingdoms, this realm like dominated by darkness and this the reality realm, God's realm, like the kingdom of light where God's rule and reign is effective. And we've been plucked out of, rescued out of that kingdom of darkness. We are exiles from that kingdom of darkness. Okay, Trying to get its muck off us, like refugees exiting it. But God has brought us into and is establishing us in uh, this kingdom of light because that's who we are now, because we're his. And this interplay between light and darkness is a massive biblical theme. We could, I was so tempted, like start getting into it. And I was like, oh my goodness, we could be here for the rest, not just this year, but next year as well. It is such a dominant theme. Like in my own Bible reading, I've been in the book of 1 John. So if this like light and dark thing is like, oh, it's kind of interesting. Read 1 John. It's like every other sentence, like, oh my goodness, like so much. But it begins in Genesis, like on the first page of the Bible where God works and we have this uh, sort of chaotic, empty darkness that's threatening. And God says, let there be light. God actually, like he starts to exercise his design, his power, his care. And darkness turns to light. Emptiness starts flourishing and filling up with life. That which was threatening starts to become something that's welcoming and like a curated environment for life to thrive in. And, And Uh, The problem is that humans really quickly turned back towards the darkness. And so they became embroiled again in evil and darkness. And and a lot of the rest of the story then, as humans have, have started to define goodness on their own terms, define what's light and dark on their own terms, like the confusion and the pain and the suffering and the evil that perpetuates from that. God keeps intervening in order to call out, no, no, that's light, that's dark. And here's a way back into the light. And it culminates in Jesus arriving. John chapter one describes Jesus as the true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world. That's the moment of Jesus arriving on the scene, that the true light, That gives light to everyone has come into the world. So I I love this. God's not just like, "Hey guys, like you're in darkness. Like this is what light is. Like like pointing at it. Like it's over here." It's like, "No, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it right into your midst. I'm gonna come right into the middle of the darkness and shine to show you what light is." Okay, amazing. And and redemption breaks out. The light starts spreading. And the darkness starts getting destroyed. And we find ourselves in that chapter of the story, that ongoing chapter of the story. This is such an amazing, like, God's timing, having us, like, read this and be about these verses right as we get ready to start celebrating Advent this Friday, right? Because this is such a theme of so much of the language of the Bible around Jesus coming. Check this out in Isaiah 9. And this is talking about Jesus, the Messiah, coming to Earth, and describing this moment as a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Like that's the sort of imagery that Advent kicks into. That the land is in total darkness. Okay, it's like Genesis one. It's kind of threatening. And then like that language that John chapter one picks up is like it's another let there be light moment. And Jesus arriving is like the sun cresting the horizon and all of a sudden light starts to flood the world. Like a complete change of scene so I'm really excited for Advent and for not just Friday, but the whole season. Like I'm expecting you know, those cookies. I want stars. I want light bulb cookies. Like we ought to get the light theme into Advent this year. Um, that's what it's all about. So, so how then do we live out this identity? If this is who we are, we're children of light because it's something Jesus has done. As we submit our life to him, as we welcome him to be our Lord, are being children of light is because of his work and his power. But then how do we live it? Like, how do we manifest it? So let's read the middle verses here. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter five, verses six to eight. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. There's some clever wordplay going on here. Uh, On the one hand, Paul is using light and dark as figures of speech to talk about being awake or asleep. Like, uh, are you you doing daytime things or nighttime things? Uh, But awake and asleep have already been used as euphemisms for people who are dead or alive. That was like a a way in the Greek world they would talk about people who died, people who'd fallen asleep. And so there's actually an interplay between these two. If you're awake, then you're alert. Like, you're doing daytime things. You're doing the right kind of things to do in daytime. But you also, you're alive. Like, you're alive to reality. You're, You're living in the light. And if you're asleep, yeah, you're doing, like, the things of darkness. You're doing nighttime things. But also... You're dead. Like you're kind of dead. Like death is actually like what's dominating your story. You're, you're bound to death. Your future is death. And so Paul is drawing a contrast and he's trying to position us at a crossroads. And we approach this crossroads as children of light, okay? Already secure, our identity. But the crossroads is like, yeah, but how do you live it? Okay? If that's who you are. If that's who you're becoming, if that's your destiny, how do you live that destiny out in the here and now? And there's a warning in here. Even though we are children of light, we can end up following the pattern of life of those around us. We can take our cues from the people around us. We, We live as children of light, but we're surrounded in this world by a lot of darkness. And we cannot take our cues for our values and our practices from what surrounds us. And just we ourselves, we are escaping darkness. God, as he forms us to become like Jesus, is disentangling us from darkness and its influence. Like so many habits, so many things that we need healing, freeing from. So many things we need to learn. So many new habits we need to form. And... We need to live and think and inhabit the light, and we're not going to do that by just like looking at the things that are obvious to us in our surroundings, because there's a lot of darkness, and it's not like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Like God is at work. There's like bits. There's pockets of goodness, but you're you're not going to find a clear idea of what light is. By, by following, like, the, the cultural narrative. Uh, and, like, and think about how, how we pick these things up. Like, those things we inhabit, those things we lean into, those things we uh, drink a lot of, like, they really shape us. Like, think about, uh, like, those of you who love football, okay? And you, you watch the, you know, you follow your team the whole season long and they make it to the Super Bowl and, and you followed it so closely, like you you develop reflexes you know exactly when to stand up and celebrate. No one needs to tell you. You know when to be angry. You know when the ref is wrong. Okay, sorry, umpire, or is it ref? Well, you know the guy I mean. And, and you know that moment. Okay, and you know what you're tempted to shout at the TV. Like we develop these kind of reflexes. Okay, or like those of you who like hate football, but you're like, I know exactly what Taylor Swift loves and hates. Okay, and, and no one needs to tell me, I've, I've now developed a reflex. Like I can see something happen and be like, Taylor Swift would love that. She would sing this about that. Like this is what she would say in an interview about that. Okay, All, all of those reflexes and, and like having some of that is, is okay. That's fun. That's like participating in our world. But alongside those reflexes should be this big bucket of reflexes where we see something happen and we're like, Jesus would feel this way about that. God's heart would break in this way for that. God would have me do this in response to that. And we are not going to develop those reflexes unless we spend time in the light. Like we have to spend time drinking in inhabiting living in the light to develop that to be shaped by the light that's what paul's saying the the darkness is is actually dangerous there's this picture of darkness like nighttime for us like last night we went downtown went to a nice concert okay beautiful full moon okay and yeah it's portland and you know people think it's sketchy but it yeah it's largely safe in paul's day No, nighttime was when you barred the doors and you stayed in. Nighttime was a time of danger. So when Paul's saying this contrast between, like, are you living in, like, daytime or nighttime? Nighttime is dangerous. Like, it's a time to be afraid. It's something to avoid. And not only that, there's, like, people who are drunk at night. And the the sort of, the twist here is, like, actually, it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be doing daytime things so if we're drunk thinking it's night we've we've kind of we've got things back to fun we're day drinking okay uh, and actually in Paul's day uh, despite like all of the like crazy ideas they had about sex drugs and rock and roll um, they had different words for it but that stuff um, being drunk during the day was scandalous so paul's painting a picture of like the nighttime is like that's where things are really dangerous and if it's supposed to be daytime and you're supposed to be a child of the night, but you're kind of doing these nighttime things, it's gone scandalously wrong, like horribly wrong. And the darkness, it, it, so it'll, it'll cause harm if we get entangled in the darkness. And it's deceptive. The things of this world can sound right, but they're not. And, and part of the surprise yeah, this picture, uh, we read at the beginning of the chapter, as Jesus returns, the people who are surprised because they think it's nighttime and they're, they're living nighttime things, is they're saying peace and safety or peace and security. Now, those words hit home to us because we love a bit of peace and we like to be secure. Okay? Those are human values. But actually, this was a Roman imperial propaganda slogan. This was one of the catchphrases of the Roman Empire. What Rome offers you is peace and security. What Rome is the source of is peace and security. And all it will cost you is your loyalty to Rome. Like That that is the message that people in the world, that they're surrounded by, have been drinking in. Because it sounds like peace, that's a good thing. Security, that's a good thing. Loyalty to Rome. No, you're anchored in the wrong place. And it's deceiving you. And and not only that, Thessalonica was this, uh, there's a type of city called a Tetrachis neokoros. Okay? What's one of those when it's at home? Well, it's a city that has paid special tribute to Caesar. So they've got temples dedicated to Caesar, the monuments set up to Caesar. They've even uh, been given the privilege of giving like special titles to Caesar so here you've got this fledgling church okay being already different because they're like no like the roman imperial like slogan like that's not our slogan like we can recognize the twist on it in the middle of a city where there's all this pressure to do things a certain way okay to be roman and not only that, like you read Acts 17 when Paul goes to Thessalonica, and the Christians in the city have already got a reputation of being troublemakers. They are seen as being sort of social and religious deviants. Okay? So Paul's painting a picture of doing a really hard countercultural thing in a hard place. Does it sound like Portland at all? Okay? I love this letter. Thessalonians, man. It could have been, it could have been like first Portlanders. Like, we are so close to this. Paul, Paul would say to us, I don't know what the slogans are like for our city. Like, be weird. Uh, like, everyone should just get to do what they want. Like, all those slogans of our city, like, they would have been the things. Like, we, lo- we just love each other by letting everyone do whatever feels good. Like, those slogans, Paul would be like, you've got to watch out you got to watch out you got to be different this is a call to resist the things that clamor for our allegiance to be aware because it's we are children of light to be aware like that's a nighttime thing that's darkness i'm going to resist it i'm going to have to actively resist it i'm going to have to be aware of what it is and be radically countercultural for jesus so then how do we do that you see this isn't just a warning. There's an encouragement now in how to do this. And it's these words, be awake and sober. Uh, being awake is the antithesis of the things we just talked about for being, being asleep. Okay, It's being alert. It's being ready. It's being alive to God, the things of his kingdom. It's inhabiting, living in them, making space for them. It's being aware of what influences us and, and how we think. And, and it's being uh, being sober, not being drunk. And this is actually a really interesting word, this like sober or sobriety, because this is a consistent New Testament metaphor for exercising control, specifically self-control. So when Paul is picking up this word, this is a word the church had come to learn, had like a special twist on it. It was exercising control over how we act, restraint. It was pursuing clear thinking about things. It is the opposite of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a place where control gets lost, where behavior is uninhibited by judgment, um, where like, old reflexes and habits get to rule the roost, and cloudy thinking, where it's hard to see things straight. So how do we do that? Like How do we get into a zone where we've got the right kind of sobriety and the right kind of awakeness, where we're awake to the right kind of things? Well, this is verse 8. We need to put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Faith, hope, love. They sound familiar? This is like a triad that crops up again and again and again. Really important ideas. Um, Paul's actually putting a twist on Isaiah 59. And the interesting thing is um, that this these things like armor that we're being encouraged to put on, they are things that in Isaiah, God is putting on, okay? As he goes to battle darkness. But now we're situated as the warriors putting on these things. Uh, You know, sort of, yeah, as his children becoming like him. Really interesting. So, So faith, Faith has to do with where our trust lies and what we believe. Like when push comes to shove, what do we lean on? Okay? And what we believe is really connected to what we trust because what we believe so often shapes what we trust. Our beliefs, like our, our trusts will conform to our beliefs. And uh, hope and love, they have to do with our desires and our values, the things we want and we consider good. The things that are worth pursuing. Hopes may be like a little more forward thinking, you know, like future directed. Like what, you know, if if I'm on the map, like what's the destination? That's what hope is. And love is this all-encompassing word, but it does bring in a little bit more, like what are those things that I want to enjoy now? Like what are those things I desire in the here and now? What do I value because those things, okay, what I trust, what I believe, what I desire, what I value, like they will shape what we see and how we see things. They, they become the filter through which we interact with the world. Okay, things happen, opportunities come up. Like our responses, our reflexes are shaped by these things, these ingredients. And like that's the... The bottom line of uh, the the control, the sobriety we're being told to exercise is it's not just a matter of like, well, you know what, like max power your control. Just like, you know, just just try as hard as you can to be controlled. No, have the right ingredients and control will actually flow. Like you, you need these ingredients. We need faith, hope, and love that have been shaped by the kingdom of light. So that we can actually tune in to light. Like this is, I mean, we don't have this anymore, but like TV sets and you had to turn the dial and like, nope, that like, oh, we're getting like two films at once here. This is kind of weird. You know, like you got to get it on the right frequency. Like this is what Paul's talking about. We got to tune in because then our reflexes are going to be different. Something's going to happen. And the loud voice in our head is not going to be, oh, Taylor Swift would. It'll be, oh, Jesus would. We can still be aware of Taylor Swift. It's okay. Like, she's not demonic. It's all right. (laughs) But we got to know what Jesus thinks first. That needs to be at our core. Now, and this this story about being children of light is really exciting because us becoming the warriors, putting on this armor, is an invitation to see ourselves as participants against the in, in the fight against the darkness. Like this is the exciting thing. Um, let me ask you this. Who does the Bible say is the light of the world? It's okay, you can answer. No. I knew you'd say that, you see. I got you. <laughs> so much fun. Now, in, in John 9, it actually says that Jesus will be the light of the world as long as he's in the world. And Jesus is light. Okay, so wherever he is, he's, he's in the world, he's light. He's the light of heaven, he's the light of all creation, he's the light of everything. But check this out Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are the light of the world. Isn't that mind-boggling? Right? And all of a sudden, Advent becomes not like a thing that we celebrate in the past that shaped something 2,000 years ago, but something that makes a difference to who we are here and now. And, and we're actually, because of the, the story of God, because God is actually defeating evil and will return to finally defeat it because we know that's the story. We live as people who are going to oppose darkness by shining light. It's like the difference it makes to that person recovering from leukemia in the hospital bed when the nurse says to them, you're healed. Do you want to start doing some therapy? Do you want to start doing something to get better? Do you want to grow strength? Do you want to take ground? Yes. Let's do it. Like, because I know the story, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to see healing come. And not just for me, but like, that this is my light shines out into the darkness. There's a beautiful statement of this in Philippians that I love, one of my favorite verses. Uh, Paul's been doing his thing, lots of practical things, lots of identity, lots of theology. and, And he says, do all of this stuff I've been talking about so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly the word of life. What a beautiful picture. There's so much we could nerd out on here. Stars, actually, they crop up again. Let there be light, Genesis 1. Stars is a way the Old Testament talks about like the heavenly host of supernatural beings that God established as partners through whom he would rule and reign and shape creation. So calling us stars is about God elevating us and saying, you actually are my image bearers, my authority bearers. I'm the source of light, that you get to be little lights shaping this world and you shine in the darkness. Like how, how beautiful as we think about Christmas and Jesus arriving and it changing the whole landscape as dawn breaks in and to think that we might be in someone else's life, the star that changes the landscape as God's light breaks in. Like that, this is so exciting. So there's a warning in here, but there's something inspiring for us to, to grow into being. This is not just about fearing darkness. And I love that this whole series, this whole letter ends on this tone. Okay, God, he, he's invited us to be formed as children of light. And Paul's had a whole bunch to say in the letter about that. And we're to be on guard, living differently. To live the countercultural way of Jesus. And again, throughout this letter, Paul's flagged up, like, hey, in your city they do this, but you need to do this. Like, lots of those differences. And here's the last twist that's really important for this how. Uh, and it's a theme we've been exploring how God calls us as a church a family, how that's actually how he wants us to be. And this section of Thessalonians finishes, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. To become children of light, we actually need each other. Like I need you to build me up and you need me to build you up. Like that's how it happens. The encouragement, the building is not something we go hide away and do on our own till we feel like we've got enough light and then we can be like, hey, hey, Like, I'm ready to join in. Like, no. As refugees from the kingdom of darkness, we arrive in this family with all the crud, and as we participate in that family, we get shaped, we get transformed. So the last encouragement is that we need to be formed by being active in God's family, by active life in this family, in God's church. And and the rest of this letter goes on as Paul gives like a list, like a quickfire round, like lots of practical, like here are light things that you need to pursue. But it's really interesting at the top of that list, the very next verse is God talking about how we need to be aware of how we're connected to the people that God is using to build us up and encourage us in the church. That we need to be aware of those things. Like God's really highlighting this for us and how I want to finish the series is by actually reading the end of this letter Um, and my my hope is that as we've stirred ourselves up to be like yeah I want to be a child of light I I, want to pursue living out the reality of being a child of light that God has made me that this quickfire round Paul has there might be something that God actually wants to say yeah and that's an area I'm forming you in pay attention to that And if if nothing else, Paul finishes with a beautiful prayer that then we get to pray over ourselves. So would you stand with me? And we're going to read this together. We're going to read it prayerfully, inviting Jesus, if there's anything he's got to show us, how to live in the light. So it says this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.